You know, for many years, I was in the aquatics business, and it's a form of a customer service, and it's pretty miserable. Most people get into aquatics by becoming a lifeguard when you're 16. It's usually your first job. I kind of got in there, I want to say I was 19, and I ended up sticking around for like six years. And you're kind of always at the bottom of the totem pole. No one really likes you, and things always break, and everyone's always mad, and it's always your fault if you're the one working there. And I hated it. For six years, I would go to work, tail between my legs, like, this is just the worst job ever. Well, the job kept getting worse and worse. Eventually, um, aquatics has a very high turnover. You see, at 16, you're not always the best worker, and so people are often getting fired or quitting, and my workplace was no exception. So... One day I woke up and suddenly I was the oldest one there. Everyone had kind of been fired but me. And now I'm in charge. Great. And now I'm the one who really has to enforce all of these rules. And probably the hardest one to enforce was we had this hot tub. I hated the thing. And when it broke, it was God's blessing on me. <sighs> but when it was working, we had a 15-minute rule. The temperature was set. The time was set all by our insurance. We couldn't decide it or we'd get in trouble, right? But if anyone stayed in there over 15 minutes, I had to go tell them, hey, could you please get out? We have a rule, blah, blah, blah. And I would never hear the end of it. Well, I've been coming here for seven years and I just think you can't kick me out of the hot tub. And I'm over here like, man, I'm not paid enough for this. <laughs> and it seemed to happen like every day. I was just getting stabbed into. And I, again, wanted to get out of there. One day, a man eventually did stay in too long and passed out. He was okay, thank God. But here's the good news. Now I had a story to tell people. I could tell people, we had a guy pass out, and now we really have to enforce this rule. And I held on to that months and months and months after that even happened and acted, I always talked as if it was yesterday when it wasn't. But I really was dealing with people's pride. People thought they had a right to stay in our hot tub as long as they wanted. This is America. I can stay in your hot tub as long as I want to. That's what it felt like to me. And I was in Texas. And if you've ever been to Texas, they're very proud of themselves. Uh, they think Texas is the greatest country on earth and they never stop reminding you. And I loved living there, but in the heart of the Bible Belt, I was like, man, y'all got to be better about this pride thing. This is rough. You know, we see that I think that, that pride and claiming what is ours is just a natural part of being human. It's one of the downsides. Jesus thought differently about it. He was very humble. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, open your Bibles to Philippians 2. 1 through 11, or you can follow along on the screen. I'll be reading from the NIV if you're curious. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, rather value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. 
And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Would you pray with me? Father God, I just pray that you teach me how to humble myself, that I be unafraid to share your word, but also unafraid to just spill my guts up here, to humiliate myself. God, I'm already good at it without trying. (laughs) And I just pray that my attitude be like that of Jesus, who lowered himself onto this wretched, broken, sinful earth, and he got down in the ditch with us, and he pulled us out himself. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So let's walk through this passage. Uh, Starting from the beginning, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love and being one in spirit and of one mind. One spirit and one mind. I think our natural inclination when we look at that passage is to think that this is like an organizational unity. That we should all be part of the same church denomination, worship in the same style, and do things in all the same way. I don't think that's what Paul's getting at even in the slightest. I think God uses our differences and that a lot of the time it's a good thing. Some people like the old traditional hymns. Some people like contemporary music. There's nothing wrong with any of that. Those are good, wonderful things. And if your favorite hymn is, oh man, leaning on the everlasting arms is one of mine, then God bless you. It's a great one. No, that's not what Paul's talking about. It's an attitude. It's a mindset. And I think when we look at the divisions in Christianity, it kind of freaks us out, right? We're like, we're not that unified. You get three people of different denominations in the room and you feel like a bomb's about to go off because they're going to argue and debate And if you grew up in a multi-denominational background, like I did, you felt like it happened all the time. Like, here we go again about the Calvinism thing. Here we go again about the this, that, and the other thing. Oh, my God. It got to the point in college where I was so tired of hearing theological debates that I would just say something silly and, and, like, leave the conversation. I would open to Revelation when it talks about Jesus and his tongue being like a fire. And I'm like, look at that. He's a dragon. And I would leave. And I would just leave it at that. And they'd all be looking at me like, what? And I'm like, that's what I want you to do. I don't want to argue with you. No, C.S. Lewis saw this differently. If you don't know who that is, very famous English author. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. And he grew up, he was not a Christian. He kind of grew up in the church, but he really wasn't a follower of Jesus. And he became a very staunch atheist in his younger years. And this is what he observed from the outside. We are rightly distressed and ashamed also at the divisions of Christendom, but those who have always lived within the Christian fold may be too easily dispirited by them. 
They are bad, but such people don't know what it looks like from the outside. Seen from there, what is left intact, despite all the divisions, still appears as it truly is, an immensely formidable unity. I know, for I saw it, and while our enemies know it too. That unity any of us can find by actually going out of our own age. It's not enough, but it's more than you had thought about till then. Once you're well soaked in it, if you venture to speak, you'll have an amusing experience. You'll be thought a papist when you're actually reproducing Bunyan, a pantheist when you're quoting Aquinas, and so forth. For you have now got on to the great level viaduct which crosses the ages and which looks so high from the valleys and so low from the mountains and so narrow compared with the swamps and so broad compared with the sheep tracks. If you didn't realize, he also became a Christian. What he's saying is, look, if you feel like we're all cutting at each other and we're all divisive, step back. Christianity has been here a long time. Open up some old author from 400 A.D. and read what he had to say about Jesus. And what you'll find is that we actually agree about the essentials most of the time. That these people from different ages, from different cultures, who speak different languages, who can't imagine the world we live in today, we're still united on those essentials. That we still are of that one mind and that one spirit. Look at what Paul writes. He says, to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Hmm. I think my natural inclination as an American is to think humility is to think less of myself, to tear myself down. I'll give you an example. You know, you go play basketball with someone my height, and you're like, hey, man, we're about to play. Are you any good? And they're like, nah. Yeah, okay, I'm all right. And they mumble, and you're like, okay, buddy. And you get out there, and he dunks on you. You're like, you said you weren't that good. And he's like, yeah. That's what we think humility is. It's like this tearing of ourselves down to think we're not that good. That's really not it. Humility is not really thinking less of yourself. It's lowering yourself. That's what Jesus did. He lowered himself. Here's what C.S. Lewis also writes about humility. This is my last C.S. Lewis quote, I promise. We'll see. But um, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, it's this really great book. He writes from the mindset of an older demon writing to a younger demon. How can you keep people off the mind of God? How can you keep them distracted? And in, in the chapter on humility, he says the best, one of the best ways to keep them distracted is to actually make them think less of themselves than they actually are. That way they're still off-center. They're not with the truth. And if they're not with the truth, their mind is still focused on themselves. I'm not very good. I'm not very great. I'm not very wonderful. I'm not good at the things I'm good at. This is how he words it. The great thing is to make a person value an opinion for some quality other than the truth. Thus, you introduce an element of dishonesty and make believe into their heart of what otherwise threatens to become a virtue. By this method, thousands of humans have been brought to think that humility means pretty women trying to believe they're ugly and clever men trying to believe they're fools. And since what they're trying to believe is actually totally nonsense a lot of the time, they can't succeed and believing the real truth. And we have a chance of keeping their minds endlessly revolving on themselves 
in an effort to achieve the impossible. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's lowering yourself. You know, Jesus never thought less of himself. Jesus was God, right? And at what point did he ever, like, play that down? He never did. Hey, Jesus, who do you say you are? Well, I guess some kind of God, I don't know. Pretty great, right? No, he never did that. He always gave them a very straight answer. Paul writes that Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with something with God something to be used to his own advantage. Look at John 8, 58 and 59. Jesus is talking to some Jewish people. They're like, dude, Jesus, who, who are you saying you are? He says, very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this, the Jewish people picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid him himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. That's a very direct claim to being God. And a Jewish person would know that very clearly, and here's why. When God revealed himself to Abraham and told Abraham what, his, what to call him, he said Jehovah or Yahweh, which means I am. God is the great I am. There's a really cool song about that, but any Jewish person knew exactly what Jesus was, was saying. He wouldn't turn around. He did the biggest throwback that they would all know. And he called it back to Abraham. That's their patriarch. That's their guy. That's the dude whose team they want to be on. He's like, nah, I'm before Abraham. I came before. And their response, if they were right, would be appropriate. You see, claiming to be God is obviously the greatest sin and greatest blasphemy you could probably ever commit, especially as a Jewish person. If you remember the Ten Commandments, the first one is that you should not have any gods before me. And so in their mindset, they're like, dude, this guy's claiming to be God. He's not God. Get him out of here. Let's kill him. But they were wrong. Jesus is God, and that's what Paul thinks, and that's what Jesus thought of himself, because he was. He never thought less of himself. He lowered himself. But what's that other part mean? He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. A lot of different translations say something to be grasped. When you read that, it's like, what are you talking about? So you are God, but you're not going to use it to your own advantage. It's not something that you're going to show off. Here's the best I can understand that. Jesus didn't just throw that around. He didn't throw his weight around with that. A lot of the time, you don't see him kicking down the door and be like, what's up, party people, God here? I'm here, everybody. You know, if I were God, I think I'd be like Jeannie from Aladdin. I'd be granting wishes, shooting lasers out of my hand. There'd be a big sign like, I'd be on every billboard being like, call me, I'm God. (laughs) You know, that's just how I think. But Jesus didn't do that. There was a great humility there. There was a quietness. There was a hiddenness. There's this hidden quality of God where he hides himself. He's not loud in the ways that we're loud. He doesn't proclaim himself in the way we proclaim ourselves. And that was the attitude that Jesus had. One of the interesting things is the disciples really wanted him to throw his weight around. They were expecting a political king when they were waiting for Jesus. The whole Old Testament talks about him, a coming Messiah, a Savior, right? And they're they're thinking, we're going to get our nation back. 
Something we say all the time, to be honest. And they had lost it. Not only had they lost it, they lost it multiple times. I'm just going to do an Old Testament speed run and walk you through it real quick. So God establishes the nation of Israel, right? They start off in slavery in Egypt. They walk through the desert for 40 years. They finally become a real nation. God splits them in half. Then they're cast off into exile in Babylon and then Assyria. And then they finally get it back. And then right in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, they lose it to the Romans. The Romans come and take it over. And they were so waiting for this political king. They wanted Jesus to throw, overthrow Rome. That's what they were expecting. You can see it in Acts 1.6. They gathered around him. This is the, the disciples gathering around the risen Jesus. And they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the nation to Israel or the kingdom to Israel? They wanted that political leader. They desperately wanted Jesus to do that thing that we would do. But he didn't. He wasn't there to simply further his own reputation. I'll tell you, I've seen people throw their weight around. It's horrible. Uh, I'm really nerdy, if you didn't know that. Probably the biggest nerd here. No, that's my pride coming in. But I, I love going to conventions, and I love dressing up, and I have costumes, and uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. There was this one convention years ago where they were letting, they were letting like the VIP people, VIP people come in the back, right? And this guy sneaks to the front, and the security guard's trying to keep him from the VIP area. And he's like, do you know who I am? I have over 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. You better let me in, or you're going to regret it. And that security guard's like, dude, I don't know who you are. And of course, he didn't let him in. I mean, right, Jesus didn't rush his way to the front and being like, God, here, time for me to get my food first at the table. Right? He, I don't know of any time that he did that. Yes, he claimed to be God. Yes, he made it very clear. But he just, you know, when God says to Job, your ways are not my ways, your thoughts are not my thoughts. I think it's very clear in Jesus' attitude that that's how he is. We also see in verse 7 that Jesus was a human being. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Man, Jesus became one of us. He took on some of our limitations. You know, God in heaven doesn't have to eat. He doesn't get sick. He doesn't have the problems that we have. In Genesis when God curses Adam, the curse to Adam and to man is that they'll have to work the ground all the days of their life and that the ground would fight them, that surviving would be this horrible ordeal. It would just be this battle when originally it was supposed to be a given. It was originally a gift. And so Jesus took on that curse. He had to eat. He had to walk to get places. Dude, if I was God, I would have flown everywhere, and I would have made it known that I could fly. When I was a kid, I prayed every day that God would give me the ability to fly. Never happened. He took on those limitations. You ever think about the other limitations he took on? Like he couldn't be, or he chose not to be in two places at once. He chose to just be himself. 
And, you know, when he left, he said, you know, you can't exactly go where I'm going yet, but I'll send the helper, and he's better because he's everywhere. He's better for you. And that's the Holy Spirit, that he is everywhere. And Jesus limited himself. He said, that's not going to be me. That's going to be the Holy Spirit. You ever think about that? You ever think about how Jesus, though being God, man, this racks my brain. God the Son and God the Father, right? He submitted himself to the will of God the Father. Though they are equally God, one's not better than the other, one's not more God than the other, and they exist in this holy trinity, and we call it one God, and if the more you think about it, the more your brain just explodes, because you're like, I don't get this equation, but okay. But he submitted himself. Even God submitted himself. Wow. You ever think about the, the, the cultural limitations that Jesus took on? How he lived in a Jewish culture that wasn't the culture he established in, in the Old Testament in those first five books. He's, uh, he sets up these law and these rules and this culture for them. And by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, things have transformed so much that the Pharisees have been making up their own traditions and calling it God's word. That things had shifted so much, they're not even speaking Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament. They're speaking Aramaic. They're not speaking Adam and Eve's language, because we don't even know what that was. God chose to speak the language of the people. God chose to walk in the ways of the people. And it's really hard to imagine when we try to do that ourselves. I was a missionary in Japan for two years, right? And during those two years, every day was a constant reminder of how I am not a Japanese man. And that I will never be a Japanese man. It was a reminder of everyone, every morning when I woke up, walked out of my bedroom door and went boop and hit my head. And I was like, oh, yeah, I live in Japan, okay. It was a reminder every day when I got on the subway and it felt like I parted the Red Sea just by my presence because they were like, uh-oh, foreigner. Whoop. They didn't look at me. They just kind of casually made their way away from me. And I was like, all right, cool. Y'all are freaked out by me. I get it. I'm freaked out by me, but it's okay. But there were a lot of coast rules that I had to choose to take on that I thought were dumb. Now, coming in, I'm like, yo, none of this makes any sense to me. Why am I bowing all the time? Why am I sitting in silence all the time? There's a lot of silence when you're having a Japanese conversation. When you're talking over there, conversations work very differently than they do here. And it was a struggle for me at first. Because I was like a bull in a china shop. And Japan is the most beautiful, dainty china shop you've ever seen with every intricate detail. I mean, they're just a people of beauty and detail. It's amazing. Well, I'm not that. I'm an American, and I walked in there with my megaphone of a mouth that could shatter glass. And, hey, everybody, how are you doing? And they're all like, ooh, ooh, what are you doing? And when you're having a conversation with them, you have to talk at a very low volume. They're very monotone. And you take turns. You see, here when we have conversations, we kind of interrupt each other. We talk over each other. And I, I'm not here to condemn anybody for that. That's just kind of who we are. We're the people who claim what's ours. And in a conversation, we kind of do the same. Japanese people don't do that. They quietly wait and take turns. So if you're in a conversation with somebody, somebody can talk for a really, 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 really long time. And then after they're done talking all the time, there's just this silence like, And these long breaths. 
And the expectation is, hey, you don't have to answer right now. Take your time in what you're thinking. Again, attention to detail. It's a beautiful thing. And I, I learned to love that. I was like, wow, these people are great. But the problem was when I got back here and had to minister to American people again, I still had a half Japanese brain. And things did not work that way here. And people were interrupting me and talking over me. And inside, I was like exploding all the time. Like, stop interrupting me, I'm going to die. I could not handle it. I would get so mad on the inside. God bless my fiance who dated me when I had been back for like two months and had all kinds of reverse culture shock. And every day was a different problem that I felt like I had and a different struggle. And she patiently sat beside me like, you're going to be okay. And internal, like, oh, I don't know. People keep interrupting me. I'm not going to be okay. This is really rude. But it, here it's not necessarily. We just kind of chime in over each other. There's a rhythm. There's a way. And it's okay. And you know, Jesus took on those kinds of rules. He took on those kinds of limitations that when he was one of their own, he was like them. He didn't look at their cultural rules and go, you know what? The way you guys hold your forks is just really dumb. The way you guys enter a house and take off your shoes, you Japanese people, is really dumb. He never said any of that. There's nothing wrong with the way... A lot of that stuff's neutral. Now, he took that on. Those were limitations he lovingly chose so that people would see that he was one of them and that he's one of us. And that if he came here in America, he would be like one of us. He would take on what honestly are a bunch of dumb cultural rules. And I say dumb out of love because I'm frustrated still. I still have reverse culture shock sometimes. And not only that, he was being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Man, that is the worst death you could possibly have at the time. It was public, it was shameful, and it was loud. It was loud in the sense that it projected a message. You see, when you would travel into a Roman town, there would be a bunch of crosses on the outside. And above the top, it would have their crimes. And so you just walk in and see dead people and the crimes they committed. So you're rolling into these towns like, okay, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Got it. That's pretty shocking. And so Jesus, he took on that death. He decided that he would die that publicly humiliating death so that we could have a right relationship with God. He humbled himself. He lowered himself. He got down on our level. Never was God up on his high horse. Like, man, everything you humans do are dumb, and this is all dumb. No, he walked like one of us. He talked like one of us. He lived like one of us. Humility is lowering yourself like Jesus did. Well, what does that look like for us? I think when you look at this passage, you're like, huh, do I just go die on a cross for everybody? Like, is that? Because that's what Jesus did. Well, thankfully, the stats are against you. Uh, that's probably not going to happen to you. Very uncommon for that to happen today, especially here in America. But Jesus did promise us persecution, and that, that does happen to some people. But for us, I think we just got to start by valuing others more than ourselves. Jesus considered your value so great that he was willing to put his life on the line for it. He was willing to die for it. You don't deserve what he gave you. 
That was his mindset and humility, to give you what you don't deserve, to give you what you're not owed. I, there's a pastor out in Wichita, uh, Pastor Brad over in a, a Crossroad Church, wonderful guy. I love what he said. He's like, a lot of the time when we go to God, we like want to claim our rights. We want to claim what's ours. We want to be like, God, give me what's mine. And he's like, that's a dangerous prayer because what we deserve is awful. <laughs> What we deserve is separation. But Jesus gave us a way out. You know, we really need to try our best to have compassion and to see things through other people's eyes. It's something I struggle with. And every four years during the election, I tell you, there's no faster place I want to go than out the window. I want to kick my computer out the window. I want to throw myself out the window. I want to destroy my phone and computer and just turn it all off and sit in silence. But that's not going to make it go away. And it's a tough, it's a tough cycle every time. Because I don't like anybody politically. I'm like, I don't like you. I don't like you. I don't like you. You're all wrong and I'm right. That's how I feel. It's true. I'll be honest with you. And I used to be the guy that would debate everybody. And you're like, Jake, this is a Wendy's. Stop yelling about this, that, and the other politics. Calm down. Oh, yeah, sorry. You know, four years ago, God really helped me, and I struggled to see the way the left saw our election. You know what they saw? They saw a man that they were afraid of win our election, and then they went into despair. And can I tell you, it's just because their hope was in the wrong place. Their hope was not in Jesus. And that, a lot of us missed that. We were too busy celebrating if you voted for Donald. I'm not here to tell you how to vote, okay? That's not what this is about. But we were too busy celebrating to see that they were lost and hurting people who didn't know what Jesus, who Jesus was, who didn't have the hope that we have, who were just lost. And you know what? A couple weeks ago, I think the same thing kind of happened on the right. There were those people who stormed the Capitol. I think they had their hope in Donald Trump and that they were willing to stake it at all costs. And can I tell you, there's no hope found in any political leader. There's only hope in Jesus. And I was very critical when those dudes stormed the Capitol. Me and my fiance got on the phone and we just ranted to each other about how dumb everybody is and how smart we are. Because that's what I do. That's who I am. But God really, as I was preparing for this message, changed my heart and said, dude, who cares about what you're thinking about? Start praying for them. Start praying that they would put their hope in me and see how lost that they are, that they're willing to storm the capital. Well, here's my question. When do we take abuse? Honestly, there's no easy answer there. Jesus took a lot of abuse on the cross and... Um, you know what? It's promised in 2 Timothy. It's promised in James. Jesus promised it. He promised persecution. He promised we wouldn't be liked and that people would come after us for it. It's his guarantee. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. You know, the way you deal with persecution, I got to say, it's really up to you and God. I can't decide that for you. God loves justice. In Micah 6, 6 through 8, what he lists those three things that everybody should do, right? Love God, walk humbly with him, and pursue justice. 
He wants us to pursue justice. And so if you're taking abuse of any kind, seek justice. Nothing wrong with it. But when we look at persecution, it's just tough. I'll tell you a story. There was a guy named Mitsuo Fuchida. He uh, was one of our dudes who bombed Pearl Harbor. It was partially his idea. And it was supposed to be a suicide mission, right? They dropped the bombs on Pearl Harbor, and he got out, and he survived. And he lands over somewhere in the Pacific, and eventually American soldiers capture him, and he survives the war. Well, after the war, he was put on trial for war crimes, and he was very upset about it. But then he met with one of his friends who he thought died during the war. It was this war engineer he thought got shot down at the Battle of Midway. Well, the guy actually survived... And he went into captivity in the Philippines. So if you know a lot about the Japanese in, in World War II, they were horrible people. They tortured all their prisoners. They destroyed Korea, the Philippines, and a lot of China. And people are still mad about it. They were not good captors. But there was a young lady named Peggy Covell, a missionary to the Philippines, whose parents were also missionaries, that when the Japanese came in, they actually killed her parents. And Peggy survived. Well, Peggy had it in her heart that when the U.S. took over the Philippines not long after, she would go to these Japanese prison camps, sorry, U.S. prison camps with Japanese soldiers in them, and she would treat them with love and with kindness and with forgiveness. And when Mitsuo heard that from his friend, that he had been in prison in the Philippines and been treated so well. It just broke his brain. He was like, what is this? I come from the samurai code, Bushido. And you know what those rules say? Those rules say if someone kills my family member, it's now my lifelong duty to get revenge, that they are a sworn and mortal enemy. And he just couldn't wrap his head around who would forgive somebody who would do such a thing. Well, he's walking around Tokyo one day. Some guy's handing out gospel tracts, and on it is this other guy's testimony, and he read it, and he was like, is this, is this that grace and forgiveness? Is that what this is? And he read the Bible, and he became a believer. And it was because someone denied their right for revenge. Me personally, as a human being, I feel like we have the right to revenge. God thinks differently about it. But me personally, man, if you wrong me in a board game, <laughs> oh, man, if you wrong me in a board game, I will now not try to win. I'll try to make you lose. <laughs> That's who I am. I kid you not. Ask any of the people I played board games with over at, at Bryson and Megan's. It happened. <laughs> but Mitsuo saw it differently, and Peggy saw it differently. Folks, we've got to surrender the right to do things our way. We've got to surrender. We've got to give up our rights. Jesus gave up so many of his by stepping down into our form, into being human. Mabel Williamson wrote about this in her book, Have We No Rights? She was a uh, missionary in the 1950s in inland China. And this young missionary came to join him, and she liked wearing bright, colorful, sleeveless dresses, and she thought, I look wonderful. And um, maybe she did. But an older missionary pulled her aside one day and was like, hey, look, um, bright, colorful dresses, 
with no sleeves. It's just a no-no here. And she goes, no, 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 I'm not going to look frumpy. I want to look cute. And so she, she picked up the language pretty quick, and she was teaching people the Bible and teaching them English, and she had a group of two young Chinese girls and a high school girl who would come to her. And one day, those uh, young, two young girls quit coming to her, and she was confused, like, where um, where'd they go? So she asked the high school girl, like, hey, where did those girls I've been teaching, where'd they run off to? And she kind of dodged the question, like, oh, you know, sidestepped it. But being an American... She doubled down, like, no, I'm going to get my answer, and asked and asked and asked and asked until she got the answer that she did not want to hear. The two young girls <laughs> said our mom doesn't let us hang out with prostitutes because she had worn bright, colorful clothes with long sleeves. In their mind, that's what prostitutes wore. Now, I'm not here to give you a message on modesty, and we see that differently, and that's a very cultural thing. But we have got to step down and we've got to take on other people's rules in order to reach them. And it's difficult. It's hard. I try to do it every day. And I promise you I'm no good at it. With God's help, I'm okay. But I I find ways to screw it up every day. The next thing I feel like we have a right to is our time. Uh, I always struggled with this because as a young guy, I'm very extroverted, and people asked me to hang out. The answer was yes. I was just hanging out with people all the time. I was working three jobs. I was going to school, and I would get home every day and be like, why am I so tired? (laughs) You laugh because you know the answer. I needed to slow my roll. I needed to rest. But once I started learning rest, I started claiming up all my time and saying, it's mine. It's mine. No one else can have it. These precious moments are mine. Precious moments aren't as creepy, but they're mine. One day when I was living in another country in East Asia, and I won't say where for security reasons, but I lived uh, other places other than Japan, and uh, I was in language school full-time, and it was just out of college. And I made a lot of friends, but I was really lonely. There was no native English speakers around me for a long time. And to get to any native English speakers took over an hour, and I was just miserable. I was like, I can't talk to anybody. I don't know nothing. God, why would you send me here? This is the worst. I sat in my room and watched Batman the Animated Series like all day because I had backed it up on a hard drive, and it was what I had. Miserable. Well, I found this English corner. It's a place where people go, like a cafe. It's like a time the cafe will have. People get together, practice their English. Everything's in English. And they ask you questions about your culture. And it became my escape. I would go there to get me time. I mean, I'd also go there and talk about Jesus, sure. But I loved the me time. I loved that I got to speak in English. I loved that I got to have a break. And I loved that I just got to talk to people and make friends. It was wonderful. Well, three local believing friends that I had made one day, I found out I was going there and asked to come with me. One of them spoke English superbly, the other two barely at all. And I knew what was going to happen. This is a culture of shame. And if you're not good at something, there's a lot of shame. So I knew we'd get there, they'd be so embarrassed about how their English is not good, and we'd make an about face and go right back home. So it was going to be an hour there, 10 minutes there, then an hour back. It's exactly what happened. And the whole way there, I'm like, God... I hate this. 
hate everything about this. This is the worst day of my life. I have nothing here, and the one thing that I have is being taken from me. And we went there, and on the way back, my friend who spoke English very well looks over at me. He's like, it looks like all the joy got sucked out of your face. Yeah, about right, it did. Well, on the way home, I'm like, you know what? Let's just go out and eat. Take them someplace nice. So I take them to, like, my favorite restaurant. It's actually very cheap. And uh, we're all eating together. Toward the end of the meal, I just feel the Holy Spirit speak through me and say, I want you to say this to them. Say that you're going to pay for the meal, that it will be free, and that just like how Jesus died on the cross and that was free, this meal is also free. And in my mind, I'm like, bing, that's cheesy, but okay. But it also didn't make sense, and here's why. Gift giving is not something you could really do in that country in the way we think of gift giving. You know, if you give me something for my birthday, I'm not, and I, I forget your birthday. Some of y'all might be offended. Most of you be like, no, it was a gift, right? Like, you don't have to give one back to me. But that's not how it worked there. Gift giving was like this contract. I gave you a gift for your birthday. Now you have to remember and you have to get me something equal or better. It was a way you got people to be your friends. And if somebody gave you something, it meant, okay, they're starting the contract. They want to be my friend. And it was every little detail. It was going out to eat. It even got to the point where, I kid you not, you go to someone's kid's wedding, you're expected to give a lot of money. But guess what? At your kid's wedding, they have to give equal or more. So everything is kind of an investment. People would go to other kids' weddings and drop big bucks so that the parents would give their kids big bucks. It's just how it worked. So giving gifts was not the best way to share the gospel, and I had been warned of that, but to follow the Spirit's leading anyway. And in that moment, I was like, this doesn't make sense. And I hate everything. But okay. So I stood up, I said it, and paid for the meal. thought nothing of it. We're walking home, and it's me and the really good English speaker, and the two girls had, had left. And I'm just asking him how he's doing, just trying to really get back to my dorm. It's like negative 30 outside. I'm from Alabama, dude. I can't make it in 40 degrees, much less negative 30. I'm dying. And he just starts bawling. I mean, tears are flowing. It's like uncontrollable. And I'm like, oh, hey, man, are you okay? He says, you know, you looked at me and you told me that the meal was free and that God's love is free. And I just, I feel it. And in that moment, I was like, oh, that's what today was about. It wasn't about me getting what I wanted. It wasn't about me having my time. God had a message. I don't know about for the other two girls, but for him. God extended his grace and his love to him through me. And I wouldn't have had it any other way. And if I had claimed my rights and decided to hurt their feelings and not invite them along, I would have missed it. If I would have said, this is my time, not yours, I would have missed it. I'm so glad that I didn't. My attitude wasn't great. God worked through it anyway. Jesus lowered himself. I think one of the things that we hold on to as Americans is our right to feel superior. And we don't mean to. It just sneaks up in there. The early Christians wrote that pride was the deadliest of the seven deadly sins because it blinds you to itself. It's the sin that hides itself right in front of you. It's the lens you see through that you don't know you're looking through. 
And that's what I have. I'm full of it. I'm struggling. If the band would please come up, I'm going to read this quote that, that Mabel Williamson wrote at the end of her books. This is about Jesus. He had no rights. No right to a soft bed and a well-laid table. No right to call a home of his own or a place where his pleasure might be sought. No right to choose. Pleasant, congenial companions, those who could understand him and sympathize with him. No right to shrink away from filth and sin. To pull his garments closer around him and to turn aside to walk in cleaner paths. No right to be understood and appreciated. No, not by those upon whom he had poured out a double portion of his love. No right even to be never forsaken by the Father, the one who meant more than all to him. His only right was to silently endure shame, spitting blows, take his place as a sinner at the dock, to bear my sins in anguish on the cross. He had no rights, and I? A right to the comforts of life? No, but a right to the love of God for my pillow. A right to physical safety? No, but a right to the security of being in his will. A right to love and sympathy from those around me, no. But a right to the friendship of the one who understands me better than I do myself. A right to be a leader among men, no. But the right to be led by the one to whom I have given my all. Led as is a little child with its hand in the hand of his father. A right to a home and dear ones, no, not necessarily. But a right to dwell in the heart of God. A right to myself, no, but oh, I have a right to Christ. All that he takes, I will give. All that he gives, will I take. He, my only right. He, the one right, before which all other rights fade into nothingness. I have full right to him. Oh, may he have full right to me.